You think you've got that drip drip because you've got a stable job and a 401k. But no one's got that duffel bag like the Federal Reserve. How do you like that inflation and mortgage-backed securities? Bet you didn't know that they loan out money that they don't have only to enslave all of humanity and buy up all the natural resources and leave you in the dust. <laughs> got him. Hey guys, welcome to the Lunch Boys Podcast, and with me is Ryan. So, And me, Jake. Henry has songs due. So it's been a lot of single or dual Lunch Boys action lately. Not in the gay way. Yeah, but, happy Pride Month. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Ryan got some new cats. Oh, I love them so much. <laughs> Easton He's a and crazy Murray. Cat man. Oh, yeah, I know. Uh, my fiance and I have agreed that three is just like the absolute max. Past that, it becomes like weird. You right. know? <laughs> so we're we're at three right now. Uh, and what what Easton and what's the other cat's name? Easton and Murray. So anybody who Murray. knows me, uh, the. T- <laughs> Excuse me, the two most prominent COVID thinkers of my life. Yeah, here we go. Not just a popcorn thing stuck in my throat. Um, <laughs> the two most prominent thinkers of my life have been probably Henry Hazlitt for getting me into all of this nonsense and then Murray Rothbard for like turning me into a radical. Um, <laughs> and so I had to name a cat Murray <laughs> just, just for that. Of it. And so now I have one and it makes me very happy. <laughs> <laughs> Ryan, we we always talk for a minute before we start recording, and Ryan was just like, "I love my cats." Like, I've, so. ha- I've had them for let me see, like two hours, and I would I would take a bullet or give a bullet for either one of them at this point. <laughs> <laughs> That's freaking awesome. Well, <laughs> dude, when I have a kid, it's gonna be like I'm gonna be one of those <laughs> parents that are like, "Here's my kid." <laughs> Every four seconds on my Instagram story, it's gonna be bad. Anyways, nobody cares. I will cares. unfollow you. I, I will unfollow you. Just mute me. Keep my ratio good, please. <laughs> I already do that for a lot of parents in my feed. It's like as soon as the baby comes out, I'm just like, "Nah, fam, I, this is no longer content. I choose to indulge in." <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm gonna. Be, you're gonna have a temporary mute on my account for sure. Oh, yeah. But (laughs) one of the other things uh, is that when Henry is gone, specifically, uh, Ryan and I like to get extra nerdy. We like to get real real in the weeds about stuff. And news right now is kind of ridiculous. It's basically just COVID narratives falling apart and Joe Biden just being a blubbering idiot at the G7 summit. Um, Just embarrassingly bad. And... Oh, I mean, I know Trump's tweets were annoying if you were a left winger, but woo, this is not good. We not that I like that America's been a global empire for years, but that felt better than this. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's like standing yeah. proud in our imperialism felt better than having a blubbering <laughs> idiot in any country could just be like, you know what? We don't care what the United States says. Like, I kind of liked having at least pretending like we had a big gun in the in the presidency. Yeah, and, and besides the um, besides the fumbles and gaffes of Biden just being, like, I know it's kind of, like, I think the right wing sometimes will overblow how stupid and dementia-ridden Biden is, but, like, this G7 summit was everything they said just came true. Like, he, <laughs> he would get oh asked gosh. a question, and it would just literally sit there and say nothing for 25 seconds, and they'd be like, 
uh, well, you see, uh, uh, and it's like you were silent for 18 seconds. Oh, you know, the earpiece has a lag to it, so he had to catch up. <laughs> um, but, like, the only massively crazy thing that I saw was the uh, everybody kind of agreeing on the global tax. And, like, nothing got signed into law or anything, obviously, but everybody kind of agreed that they would back a um, global corporate tax rate of 15%, which, you know, the conspiracy theorists have been saying that there's a new, or a, a one world order sort of thing, new world order, one one world mm-hmm. government thing coming for years now. Especially, and, yeah, absolutely. And we have been inching that way, but this really is just the thing where it's like oh yeah here we go all right buckle up i guess like uh jesus christ all right i guess this is <laughs> i guess this is a thing now um, i do get confused too because uh, would all the nations have to take an inventory like you know let's just get into the logistics of it just for two seconds because it kind of falls in on itself immediately is yeah. okay so some of the largest corporations in the world are in the united states meaning mm-hmm. like your apples and uh, your Googles, your Facebooks, those guys, right? Yeah, Nike. The, the big tech. <laughs> Nike, yeah. right? So you've got these massive American companies. And so I would, and this is just me like posturing or, or this is conjecture because I'm, I haven't like researched to break down what the split is. But it does seem like, you know, because of our capitalism, uh, that we have a lot more huge and, and Amazon. Why, how also, do we not mention that? The Walmart. You know, yeah, you know, and, you know, destroying monarchies overseas in World War One. But <laughs> so we just have like massive, massive companies. So the global tax, I feel like benefits much like things like uh, the Treaty of Paris and things like that or the Paris Agreement. Sorry, the Paris Agreement. Mm-hmm. Um, the climate it seems one? to. Yeah. Yeah. Gotcha. It seems to largely but the benefactors seem to largely be everybody but us. Yeah. We pay for your climate change. We pay for, or our corporations are going to pay the tax. And it's like two questions that I have is everyone else I'm assuming doesn't have near as many of these large corporations or as valuable as these large no. corporations. And then the second thing is when this tax is collected, does everyone keep their own share of it and then contribute equally to a mutual fund? Or, you know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. is it going to some other one world government? This is a conspiracy side of it. Like, wh- whose bank account does the money get kept in, especially if everybody agreed and committed to it? Like, there's a lot of logistical errors I'm finding here. Yeah. Um, and it really depends. Because I, I, from my understanding, unless something has changed or unless I, like, misread, um, uh, the idea is you need to tax these corporations in order to invest back into your citizens or whatever they would, they would say, you know, which obviously I disagree with wholeheartedly, but like that would be the idea. But if the, if the idea of it ever becoming a global pool ever gets floated at all, like that's just such a terror. That's, I mean, not to be too hyperbolic global communism, you know, or at least socialism or partial communism. Um, so it's an absolute disaster of an idea. I mean, I'm against taxation no matter what, but like, especially when it's like world leaders being like, yeah, all of us should get together and back this one tax thing for everybody. It's like, so there's not even going to be a tax, like safe haven or anything. Um, there was also that, um, the, uh, global infrastructure bill called the build back better world infrastructure bill. I think it was something like $6 trillion, 
for global oh, infrastructure. Yeah. And if you want to see what the biggest corporate bailout or uh, handout rather in, in the history of the world is going to look like, it's going to be that and then our military. Like, what, again, like you said, we 100% would end up contributing the most out of it and probably some like broken town in finland you know would end up getting a new bridge for it you know and like right. we wouldn't have anything to show for it relative to how much and then we put cars in. that pollute the earth will drive over that bridge yeah but they, they do have a hundred percent new car tax so the price of a new car in those scandinavian countries or that area are uh, literally twice as high as in america so they're all old cars, so they're even worse for the environment, <laughs> which is hilarious. But by getting rid of the new cars that have the uh, a lot of the... Like, for example, back in the day, a BMW M3 Coupe, which they don't make anymore. They made a new model called an M4. They made that model and the M3 as a twin-turbo V6, specifically because less gas, better fuel, better gas mileage, even though naturally aspirated engines are so cool. Mm -hmm. Granted, turbo does give you a different set of benefits, but also gives you a different set of challenges from a repairs and kind of thing standpoint. I'm not super into cars, but enough into cars to know that turbo sucked yeah, to repair. More than me. Bottom line You sounded is, like you were into cars to me right there. I don't know. Oh, dude. <laughs> That's how little I know. aspirated in engine, it's just, you know, like, yeah. you know how, like, you find that, that person who's probably not in our country legally with a massive muffler on their old Honda Civic? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> like, and they're white. Just in case anyone's wondering. But anyway, um, <laughs> but like there's totally um, got to, you know, watch out for the, the, the sensors. But that that sound is so much more rewarding when it's coming from your engine as opposed to a muffler that's just farting behind your car. Like, yeah. oh, what a sound. But I digress. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I mean, I agree. I, like, I just think it's going to be a disaster no matter what. Um, and that on top of this nonsense infrastructure bill we have already making our way through um our congress here which is another six trillion dollars maybe i got the prices mixed up the one here is definitely six trillion mm -hmm. i i might have just forgotten what the global one was um but either way like that's just going to be another uh you know corporate <laughs> welfare for the billionaires which is supposed to be what they're against but here they are you know supporting every right. supporting it every step of the way because um, ultimately, a lot of these these policies, what they do is, even though it does suck if you're a rich guy getting yet another tax for basically virtue signaling reasons levied against you or your business, the bottom line is, just like people will say like, oh, rich need to pay their share, fair share because they can afford it, that applies with economic policy as well. So when you commit to tax the rich in that way, guess what? They can afford it. But now mm -hmm. if you're a business owner or if you're just underneath of what's really going to blow up, you literally place a cap on what types of services are able to be offered by new businesses, how we can get rid of false monopolies because it's not actually a monopoly, you know, like in the same way that Facebook took out MySpace when no one thought it was possible mm -hmm. and when Google Chrome and Safari took out uh, Internet Explorer when no one thought it was possible. Or when or, Standard Oil fell. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So yeah. th it's not really a monopoly unless there's more government involvement that makes it harder for people to compete, which seems to be... Or bans people from competing. Or it bans people from like, competing in a way that's meaningful. Exactly. There are examples of or, uh, companies that get closer to monopoly than not. Like Standard Oil did have, I think it was like 87% of the market share of oil 
um, at their peak, but they were also legitimately providing a service cheaper than anybody else was. So like it was a deserved 87%. Um, right. But without government involvement, there has never been a 100% monopolist other than government. Right. Um, so that's that's just something that uh, leftists get wrong. And, you know, like uh, there was a, an Ayn Rand with uh, uh, Donahue, I believe, interview where she, somebody came up and asked, like, well, you're such a fan of laissez-faire capitalism, but what about the monopolies? Look at, um, I, I forget what the uh, example they used was, but like it was the monopoly scare of the day. And then nothing ever happened. Like they never became a monopoly and then nobody changed their theory. It's just like, well, markets lead to monopolies. So I need somebody to break it up. And then like in that example, nobody broke it up and it wasn't monopoly because competitors came in an undercut, uh, you know, the, the, the quote monopolist. And it's like, okay, well maybe your maybe your theory is garbage. If it just continually isn't what happens and then they just 100%. moved on to the next thing. Now it's big tech and you even have conservatives who are so-called free market enthusiasts saying we got to break up Twitter and Facebook and YouTube or at least regulate the hell out of them so we can say what we want on them too instead of like again, I, I've heard other people say it and I forget who it was. If President Trump had went and joined Gab or parlor or something like that boom instantly a competitor he just didn't like right it, conservatives like build your own platform build your own media sources and people crap on libertarians all the time for having so many podcasts it seems like every libertarian twitter account has a podcast because <laughs> we do but like that that's <laughs> that's us trying to utilize the market to carve out a space for ourselves that we can have our own thing without fear of getting banned and then other blue-pilled, you know, bitch libertarians are going to sit there and make fun of people with podcasts, and it's like, dude, like, this is the market at work, so get on board or take the L out of your name, you know? Oh, yeah, yeah. The, it, it's got to be exhausting for you, especially in the echo chamber on Twitter that you're in, because you encounter so many more of those libertarians than I do, and I bet it just makes you want to yeah. yank your, especially considering that just, like, you wouldn't say this because you would never give yourself credit, but I'll say it for you, is... I know for a fact that you've read more than most libertarians. I would say you are on the level with some of the, I, I don't want to use the word elite, but like just like oh, the most yeah, no. known, like just the, some of the best guys out there that are dissecting this philosophy. You are on that page. <laughs> I, do, and a I lot disagree, of these, but all right, I'll take see, it. See, <laughs> exactly. You're not going to give yourself credit, but uh, yeah. what's amazing is, these guys who've read like two Rothbard books are going to sit there and then try to apply this, this, this philosophy in a left leaning, uh, through a left leaning lens. And it's gotta be incredible. But the exhausting. thing is they, they don't even like Rothbard. Like that's the thing they haven't read Rothbard and like, that's fine. If you don't want to read Rothbard, some of his cultural stuff gets kind of dated, you know, like he wrote it in the seventies, some of them, some of them. So like, obviously it's not going to hold up to current day. It's like reading Lincoln. It's like he, he was a massive racist like everybody was a racist back then and also mm -hmm. everybody was kind of scared of gay people in the 70s and 60s when rothbard was writing you know right um so they kind of hold them to was a, still a mental illness back then <laughs> yeah yeah he, they kind of yeah. hold them to a current moral and cultural standards and so they like trash rothbard and it's like dude everything else that he's done for the like the intellectual side of this movement no matter what he said at, your opinion of him should be at worst neutral like man economy and state is an economic tour de force that can't be competed with 
except for human action, which it was basically based off of. Uh, but I think Man Economy State was better, even, to be honest. Um, oh, really? Oh, 100%. Um, did you That's hear what I happened in... Open, uh, so. d- did you hear what happened in LP New Hampshire? I think you kind of mentioned something about it, but... So we have please. something we're, we're actually trying to talk about today, but like real quick, this it drives me off the wall. So um, uh, Dave Smith, on part of the problem, just had Michael Heist, the founder of the Mises Caucus, on to talk about what happened in way more detail than I'm going to go right now. So essentially, in New Hampshire, the Mises Caucus had a clean sweep of basically everybody except for the um, uh, the chair of the the state party, basically. And we, and we even like, from what I understand, let them have the chair as like a, a gesture of goodwill, um, and they took everything else. And since then, the New Hampshire Twitter account has been just kind of, in my opinion, kind of reckless, but like bold and like edgy. Um, which like we needed a dash of, but I think they went too far, but like, that's not even the, the point. Um, so essentially what happened is the, uh, New Hampshire chair created a entirely new organization, called it the Libertarian party, New Hampshire. And then the chairman of the LNC, the Libertarian national convention. So like the global or the, the national, the global, the national, uh, Libertarian Party basically it's signed like over that have two campuses in Kentucky and they say they're the global worship pastor. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Um, and then I, I believe his name is John Bishop Henchman, which what a name for what he did basically signed over yep. the rights to the new organization with all the people who lost the election in New Hampshire to like recognize them as the official New Hampshire uh, state party. And, and like, the new organization seized all of the assets and data of the old, like, legitimate organization. So that's, like, donor information, credit card information, emails, addresses, all of it. Seized all of it, all the physical assets, all of it. And uh, it, it, if they're not all either uh, impeached or removed from their positions and also arrested, they, they just they seized personal financial information like if they're not all arrested or removed like the lp is dead because like if, if you can just make a new party when things don't go your way in a state and the lnc if you have your guy in will run with it you know there's there's no libertarian party and if that's happening at the libertarian level imagine how difficult it is to change power dynamics in the super parties that are Republicans and Democrats. When all of this was going down, it it hit me because there's a guy named Tho Bishop who has been the leading voice of the paleo strategy of basically taking over the GOP and making the GOP Mm -hmm. more libertarian rather than making the libertarian party the one of the two main parties. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Um, And he's been... Every day he convinces me a little bit more and then today I just realized, you know, even libertarian politicians are still politicians. Mm-hmm. Like you might be the tallest midget, but you're still a midget. You know what I mean? You're just, you're a principal <laughs> of a homeschool. Like, come on now. Right. Uh, like your title doesn't mean anything. And, and so now it's just a whole thing. I don't even remember what we said that got me on this. It's just the thing that's been rattling around my head today um and now there's all the oh it's because of the woke libertarians and like the oh yeah, the yeah. left-leaning libertarian and again 
I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say again, the woke libertarians are the problem. The left libertarians, some of them are very good. Again, Lysander Spooner was a left libertarian. Uh, Gary Chartier, uh, Emma Goldman, all of them are left libertarians. Uh, Sterner, you know, all, all of them. But these woke <laughs> establishment libertarians need to sh- shut up and get out of the way. And they're just doing all <laughs> this nonsense. Um, and Which music- I would say is true of all the parties. Because you've got woke Democrats where you could have a very intelligent conversation with a Democrat in the early 90s, you know, mm-hmm. you'd have a very, de- I mean, I would even venture to say even through a lot of the Bush years, you could, uh, yeah. there were great people out there that were really trying to just make obviously things that like at a fundamental level I disagreed with, but they had at least enough principle to be able to argue it reasonably. Mm-hmm. And they, the, the Democrats are now starting to pander so much to woke Democrats that there's it, they kind of put that same group of people between Iraq and a hard place because it's like either Wait, between I fight for a- Iraq and a hard place. <laughs> <laughs> Literally though, because that's kind of when a lot of the switch happened was after we got into the wars for uh, against terrorism. Yeah, but and, and then the 2008 crash I think was the biggest nudge after that was the 2008 crash because then we and the occupy. we lost the anti yeah we lost the anti we had one more. Um, one more spurt of it, which was the anti-corporation left-leaning movement. And then as soon as the corporations just started to say, we stand with people uh, who have been maligned by society, mm-hmm. buy our books and open an account with us. It's yeah, like, exactly. As soon as they did that, all of a sudden it was just all about if you can pander to Wokies, then you're good because they don't have any real... They're not They're not fighting for anything real other than for people to just say, t- talk like them, sound like them, act like them, pander to them. And so... I think that it's the same thing that happened. The Democratic Party is happening in the Libertarian Party, where Mm -hmm. even when we talk about lefties today, what we really mean is woke people. It has a lot less to do for me with people who are left leaning in the in the traditional sense or the political compass sense Mm -hmm. and a lot more to do with people who are just woke, arguing for things that have no basis and they don't have any baseline um, ability to apply their ideas to how economic fallout and how that affects the rest of us. And so those people I find incredibly dangerous, but lefties in the traditional sense, which is almost never how we address those types of people, I think are really intelligent. Oh yeah. I mean like there's a little bit of horseshoe theory. Like I I just recently moved and uh, my uh, roommate was an anarcho communist. So basically the exact opposite of me, but like a different color of the black flag (laughs) or a different flavor of the black flag. Um, It's maroon. And yeah, we we agreed on basically everything up until private property. I'm like whether or not it should be a thing. Um, but like everything else we were hundred percent on board with. And he was like much more well read in uh like just general philosophy than I was like he had read basically every name you could think of when I'm just an economics nerd and that's why he's a communist because <laughs> he was a ph- philosopher, not an economist. Um, <laughs> Uh, That's funny. <laughs> but the the last thing I want to say about this is that out of this, um, I did get retweeted by the legendary Dave Smith. So I guess you know there was a positive out of all of this. That that was pretty and awesome. That, I was like Ryan, you've got to just like repost every Lunch Boys episode ever now. <laughs> yeah, I, I got like fifteen followers or something off of it. And I'm like. Okay, <laughs> like, yeah. this is cool because basically um, there was some like person who calls everybody in the Mises caucus alt right like Nazis or whatever, um, saying or Dave was saying at wh- whoever was involved 
you got to answer these questions or else we're just going to assume the worst in this situation. And then the guy who calls everybody Nazi retweeted that and said, um, so, uh, or he doesn't need to answer any of your questions. And I retweeted, I quote tweeted that. And I was like, hold on. So every time somebody vaguely associated with the Mises caucus makes an offensive joke, Dave has to answer for it and condemn it completely as an offensive comedian. But he just like had a coup attempt in a libertarian state party and he doesn't have to say anything because like that is what happened. Every time somebody vaguely says something offensive, they're like at comic Dave Smith, are, are you going to condemn this bigotry as irrational and repugnant? And it's like, dude, I'm on the Legion of Skanks. Like, no, I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> we have white comedians who go, what do you call black people? And then they go, nah, 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 nah. And then they laugh about it. It's like the most offensive stuff you can possibly come up with. And everyone knows it. It's not like Dave Smith specifically. They just, it's, it's what they do. That's their brand of yeah, comedy. They're marketing. They market themselves as the most offensive podcast on the planet. And then Dave says, oh, I might run for president. And then everybody's like, do you want your president to, you know, stand by idly with these jokes being made? It's like every other president standing by idly while kids are being blown up. So I don't see what the big, effing deal is if we're being honest i mean past several presidents until we finally get some information on galane which by the way is she even alive yeah <laughs> we haven't real. heard anything from her since I, last I year i saw the the but, court date got updated let me um yeah well, while you're looking that up like how do you spell meanwhile that? we had several presidents who just stood stood by and on let this dude that they knew it, yeah some of them on the plane that they knew had a bunch of underage girls on this island having sex with high with with uh, ceos and politicians like, which one's worse here? Which one are we going to condemn worse? You know? Someone who made an offensive joke. Trial to begin in November, by the way, on Galen. Ah. Well, they pushed that back nice. and they It, it back was back. July 12th. Good grief. I cannot wait. Yeah. Um, Maybe they just need Kamala to be president before they do it, so that way <laughs> it's I, not the president who gets indicted. I guess so. <laughs> who knows? Speaking of the president... You you mentioned earlier that six trillion dollar infrastructure bill, and so let's get to what we were actually going to talk about. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> this is what happens when me and Ryan haven't talked in a hot minute. Is we just hang out, but on the show. So you're welcome. But yeah. <laughs> um, but with the six tr- trillion dollar budget, you have to ask yourself, where's the money coming from? So we wanted to take a little bit of time today Narnia. to talk about <laughs> literally, and uh, we want to take a little bit of time today to talk just a little bit about some of the ideas. Specifically in that Rothbardian, Misesian school, Austrian school of thought about money. And there's lots of things that we can go to and talk through regarding this. But money is probably one of the biggest things that will get any person who's a principal libertarian just off their rocker and pissed off. Um, The legendary Ron Paul, when he would talk about ending the Fed, just Mm -hmm. like you would see him... The two things that would make him like get as close to cussing somebody out, I felt like, was the Fed and war. Those were yeah. the two things that if you mentioned those in front of Roth or in front of uh, uh, Ron well, Paul, he'd be like, Aah! just like go off. So sorry, my cat's sneezing trillion... in the background. If you hear oh, it's all good. <laughs> he's the hairball. No, he's he's sneezing. <laughs> sorry, if you hear it at all. I did. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, so. With this $6 trillion budget, my first thought is we're already in a deficit, a significant deficit. 
And so when you're adding in the $6 trillion and not proposing new taxes and things like that, and we're already functioning in a budget, then again, what we're doing is we're going to run straight to the government printing press. Mm -hmm. And there are so many issues that fall out whenever we access that government printing press, printing press from a monetary standpoint Mm -hmm. that are so much bigger than we could even get in. Even if we had six hours for the single episode, there's so many things that screws up personally and intimately with the rest of the economy yeah. that it's just so, so I'm, I'm gonna actually i'm gonna front load this with book recommendations all right let's um do it. okay so there's america's great depression all of these by murray rothbard america's great depression uh what has government done to our money the origins of the federal reserve um let me see let me see uh and then by how do you pronounce his name um Where's the uh, Jesus Huerta de Soto? Uh, money, bank credit, and economic cycles. Um, there's Man, Economy, and State, and Human Action uh, by Rothbard and Mises, respectively. Um, there is coming up Money Mechanics by Robert P. Murphy. That's going to be out very soon. Um, and I think that might be, and also The Ethics of Money Production, also by Mises, The Theory of Money and Credit. Uh, Ethics of Money Production was is by Holzman. I forget his first name. Um, uh, History of Money and Banking in the United States by Rothbard as well, from colonial to 1917, colonial era. Um, and that's all I can... I'm staring at my bookshelf trying to find another one. Uh, but I think <laughs> that might be all of them. Um, also, The Origins of Money by Carl Manger is a very important one too um so that's like six thousand pages of (laughs) material that'll make you an unstoppable force on monetary policy um (laughs) and i've read most of it which is unfortunate for the rest of my life (laughs) for your mental health right because then you you get just a tiny bit of understanding about inflation and monetary modern monetary policy uh and then all of a sudden you just read an article like Biden's $6 trillion or uh, infrastructure plan. Or you read about the $9 trillion stimulus bill and you just start mm-hmm. to hyperventilate. You're just like, because <gasps> it's not just stimulus check payments. It's not just infrastructure. Mm-hmm. It's like you are literally, by printing this money, you are screwing the purchasing power of the dollar. You are forcing poor people to stay poor. You're making it impossible for middle class families to increase their wealth. And you're making it solidify that rich people will stay rich. You are also destroying the ability of our government to actually provide any goods and services if you live in the constitutional status republic that we have right now. You're making it impossible for the government to actively provide the services that it's supposed to be providing within that framework efficiently. You are destroying the business cycle. You are making it so that you're Mm. guaranteeing monopolies and keeping people from being able to compete with those companies. And then you're also destroying our ability to be able to save because you're affecting our time preference by giving out these payments and destroying our ability, like the, the, the growth potential of this money that we save. So it's just like, Whoa, you are screwing us for 600 bucks or 1200 bucks, you know? Yeah. Or or even like (laughs) not even growth potential, but merely, uh, preservation possibility. Like if you, if you throw money in a bank, you're going to get, you know, whatever, uh, inflation minus the interest rate or, you know, whatever the equation would be, you're going to lose that much money. So you're going to, it's just going to sit there and devalue. And it doesn't have to be this way. It is, is 
basically the Austro-Libertarian um, message, and especially the Ron Paul wing of it and the Rothbard wing of it. Um, right. So I think it's important to point out that uh, money being fiat is very, very recent. It is not a... Again, it doesn't have to be like this. And historically speaking, it typically wasn't until the last like 130 years-ish. Um, and anytime it started to be fiat, it was like Julius Caesar, um, uh, what's the word, like clipping coins or whatever, like getting edges off of coins and taking the gold to you know make other gold and make the original clip coins less valuable or mixing a silver alloy to make the gold less pure or anything like that. So you could consider that um, not fiat, but like a form of inflation and currency de- devaluement. Um, so the origin of money, according to Manger, and then it's expounded upon by Mises, Manger, Hayek. Or ha- actually, Hayek is not great on monetary policy. If we're being honest. On the origin of money, he's sound, but on monetary policy, he's <laughs> kind of garbage. <laughs> and it, it falls <laughs> apart really quickly. Um, he's basically like, oh, for money, we should just all compete with different currencies. And it's like, no. (laughs) (laughs) That's really confusing. (laughs) It's like, yeah, we should all just print our own currency and see who gravitates to what. And it's like, okay, but is the currency backed by anything? No. Okay. Well then like, it's not going to basically personal fiat at that point. Yeah. Then it's not going to hold up. And if it's backed by gold, then you don't just have com- you don't have competing currencies. You just have your lending of gold. Like it's a whole thing. Um, but essentially, the idea was that out of a barter economy, there becomes a good, and it depends on the culture, region, um, resources available. Out of barter comes a good that is. Uh, accepted as a medium exchange commonly throughout the area historically speaking it's been like in early colonial days it was uh seashells and african tribes it was glass beads um there's a uh, in the book the bitcoin standard it has a brief history of mon- uh, of money and monetary policy and it talks about an island that used like giant rocks that you would have to like have the entire tribe like push to the receiving tribe as like a form of payment Uh, so like it just depends but out of barter there would be a good that had some level of utility and some level of desirability um, that would emerge out of these spontaneous market transactions and then everybody would kind of uh, not agree on but kind of end up with the um, uh, conclusion that okay well this is just going to be money if I can take this and trade it then it'll be tradable for something else with somebody else essentially Right. It's basically always been gold and silver has been like the end game of that process. And it's because it satisfies a few uh, really money specific qualities and characteristics. Um, So things like easily divisible. You can break gold into a bunch of pieces. It's super easy to weigh and measure and make sure you have a very specific amount of something. Um, There's a lot there's value density. So like if you use something like grain or feathers, you know, you would have to have like a room full of feathers for anything worth anything. You know what I mean? Like if you wanted a car, you'd have to drive over a U-Haul full of feathers, uh, probably six (laughs) U-Hauls worth of feathers to trade for the car. So there's value density. Um, There's longevity. So if you use something like 
uh, like cooked beef or food or something, like it'll go bad. And that makes long-term investment essentially impossible. <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, and also it doesn't weigh a lot. So all of that, and plus the most important thing out of any money is the stock to flow ratio, which basically means if I have X quantity of a, uh, of a resource, the ratio between that and how much more of that resource is added to the stock in any given time. So gold, if I'm, if I'm remembering correctly, has a stock flow ratio of about 1%. So there's very minor inflation on, on gold. Silver has something like five and a half or something, which mm-hmm. is why I'm a gold fan, is because I, I, I think the stock-to-flow Sorry, Henry. ratio... Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, Henry. <laughs> the stock-to-flow ratio to me is the most important uh, aspect of money. Um, that and longevity and, like, not breaking down. Because, you know, if you can... Like, fiat has a terrible stock-to-flow ratio because you can just hold a button and send thousands of dollars to every person on in the country. Trillions. Trillions, even. You can just hold a yeah. button. So there's a potentially unlimited stock to flow ratio where and if it's a, a hard, hard money or a, a resource and a, or a commodity is the word I'm looking for. There's only so much gold in the world. Well, there's a, there's a natural progression with that, right? So you, you begin with the commodity, then the, the purpose of currency, right? We call it money, but we're kind of also differentiating between currency and sound money right or a, a currency so, is a money right but the note of currency meaning like whether it be five euros or five dollars the paper note mm-hmm. is we also call that money but in, re- in reality that paper note isn't worth anything yeah and so you, you here's where that breakdown happens is that you've got the commodity which would be gold silver oil even like oil look at that yeah anything yeah like anything that's valuable would be the commodity right so just for the sake of like in a yeah yeah anything valuable anything that you can ascribe worth to that is physical is how i I would define it personally because like you could have a whole lot of piss and like i don't think anybody wants to trade that and you know print dollars to not have to take it places unless it grows in your garden makes your garden grow and maybe then people want it but it's a it's just say gold and silver (laughs) yeah yeah yeah, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) um so you've got the commodity so then in a status society and even in an anarchist society if people agreed to to trade this way and it was you know mutually it was voluntary for both parties to trade in this way then you have representative money so then you have a paper note or uh something else right Mm -hmm. but a paper note that says that this paper note is is a representative of the say it's a a hundred dollar bill right this paper note of a hundred dollars is representative of the one hundred dollars in combined commodities that i have in my storehouse mm-hmm. right so or, or in my bank whichever right oh, so real it's fast. always also the case against the fed by rothbard that's what i was forgetting oh it, that's like one of the most important ones yeah uh, <laughs> i know i know <laughs> Um, so that, that's what that paper notes for. The issue that we run into today is that particularly Woodrow Wilson, if for those of you who understood the joke that we posted on the lunch boys, <laughs> um, everything is unless, his fault. Have we posted? Yeah. He's the worst. Um, the federal reserve act established the federal reserve, central banking system, the income, and then tax, we started to the world war one tags. All of it's his fault. Too. All of yeah, it. Him and Lincoln, <laughs> like real bad. Both of them. They suck. Uh, FDR sucks a lot too. New Deal. Yeah. Um, but, <laughs> but anyway, so then you have Woodrow Wilson come in. We start 
the Federal Reserve Act. And then what we do is we start to slowly move ourselves off, which I think we had already been doing for some years at this point. But this was like one of the crucial, crucial separations from sound money and what we now know as fiat. Yeah. So what happened is that paper note used to be able to take it to a bank and say, okay, this is representative of the $5 in silver that have been credited to my account or the $5 in gold or whatever to $100. And I want that now. So then you take it to the bank, you give them the $100, and then they would give you your gold or silver commodity in, in exchange. When the Federal Reserve, when we started printing money for government purposes and injecting by false inflation, which we'll get to inflation in a second because we, we've talked about it on the show before, but we're, well, you can take a little bit more of a deep dive into why it's very nefarious to call inflation an increase in prices because yeah. it makes it so that then, according to Rothbard, we now have nothing to explain the inject false in- the the false injection of of the money supply. So anyway, you get that false injection of the money supply, but it's not indicative at all of any new gold or silver that's been mined out of the earth. So now that that money is the reason why that hundred dollar bill is worth a hundred dollars, which is the hundred dollars that we carry in our pockets today. The only reason that that hundred dollars is worth quote unquote a hundred dollars is because your state says it is. And for as long as, especially in America, that we are the global superpower, and the same thing with even in Europe, where as long as they, as, you know, I guess you could say, uh, they aren't necessarily superpowers, but developed nations, as long as they and the other developed nations agree that their currency is worth something, then now those paper notes that you carry and that you take take to the bank, there's nothing backing them. There is no commodity and it's not representative of anything. It's only a show of the, uh, the credibility that your state has given to that piece of paper. Am I explaining that well, Ryan? I mean, (laughs) like the only thing I have, again, it's like super cynical anarchist view, but I even like MMTers, uh, modern monetary theorists, um, will agree. Sounds like a gang. Yeah, right. Uh, <laughs> like MS-13 or something. <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, there actually is something giving the dollar value, and it's literally violence. You will get thrown in jail if you don't have X number of dollars at the end of the year to pay your taxes. So that gives you a massive incentive to do all your dealings in dollars. Hmm. So, uh, that, wow. Yeah. So I guess you could say, and that matter of fact, if you get into social issues as well, um, if you're a poor black man and you get pulled over with too many grams of weed, you get thrown in jail. But if you're Dave Chappelle and you get pulled over with too many grams of weed, they're like, oh, you're funny. And you go, mm-hmm. the, the issue here isn't so much that cops are racist, although policies that cops enforce can be, uh, usually are. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but the issue here is that there's a class system here. And if you have more of these dollars, then not only are you more important from how the government and the agents of the government will treat you, but how society sees you because the more you have that, the more you can escape violence of the state. But that's kind of going away from the point I was making. Yeah. Um, the, the main thing is just like the natural breakdown of going from commodities to representative, which we don't do at all anymore to solely fiat where your piece of paper is only guaranteed by way of, uh, the the credibility that our government gives that piece of paper. Yeah. Um, also, fun fact: FDR banned the private ownership of gold in 1933, which is hilarious. So uh-huh. watch all that like <laughs> break down too, because it's the same thing with like when we were talking about healthcare. When you have Republican presidents who will artificially short the supply of doctors, yeah. and then you have Democratic presidents who artificially increase the demand forty years later. Yeah. Um, so and then you also the have thing. Republicans artificially increasing the demand too. Ronald Reagan, you know the uh, uh, 
the the policy that an emergency room has to treat you and the taxpayer will cover the the bill that was ronald reagan that wasn't some socialist democrat or whatever that was mr apparent libertarian small government reaganomics guy ronald reagan you know basically did uh universal health care before bernie sanders was even in office from what i if i'm remembering correctly reagan is the more i learn about him and the more i understand about um trickle down economics which as a term i don't have a problem with because it makes sense to me which is probably why it's so nefarious uh but like trickle <laughs> i just trickle so down, frustrating uh, with him trickle down he econ- wasn't near as good as republicans want to remember him as yeah. being and he also banned uh, uh started the drug war and banned machine drug guns <laughs> like um, <laughs> so bad but trickle down economics actually does suck cutting taxes on just the rich is like not great economic policy because they will because they know the next guy might come in and raise them they will like stash it in overseas accounts and like maybe not spend it in wise ways but the oh, the I argument absolutely have a problem with the prince with the policy of trickle down economics the term i don't have an issue with because i think it's observable but continue oh yeah i was just gonna say like i am also against trickle down economics because i'm against taxes for everybody uh so it's like we're <laughs> taxes are theft. it's not it's not like the same thing um <laughs> moving on <laughs> and also like what is more trickle down than taking all the money putting it at the top and then literally trickling it down <laughs> like i right. like the, <laughs> that is that is the government plan but whatever it's that's not right. important um because i just one more thing on trickle down trickle down is that i think that when you have a jeff bezos or even a steve jobs who create these massive organizations what a lot of people don't realize when they like hyper criticize billionaires is that for every billionaire there's several millionaires and multi-millionaires underneath of them mm-hmm. more than what would have been if they weren't billionaires and then several six-figure earners underneath them more yeah. than what would have, would have been if they weren't you know millionaires so and then several low-income earners that wouldn't be earners if it weren't that for wouldn't them. be earners at all exactly is the important thing yeah so to me capitalism naturally redistributes wealth and causes a trickle-down effect it yeah. makes everybody in the downstream which is kind of a bad term because it makes you think of mlms but it makes it so that everybody in the downstream is also making more money than if that person wasn't yeah. earning as much as they can so but anyway i i like the term i really i felt like the term much like patriot act and things like that yeah was kind of used against the will of the people because we were too dumb to know what was actually happening and, and it was, really it was lefties that turned the coin as like a a shot against it but anyways that's completely unreal it's kind of like how Karl marx was one of the people who make the word capitalist uh popular um but uh yeah the transfer from a commodity backed money to a fiduciary uh medium which is like a partially backed money and then to completely fiat is only possible through fractional reserve banking because if there was a 100 percent reserve banking and i'll get to saying what that is in a second if there was 100 percent reserve banking it would be that every dollar is backed by a dollar worth of gold in the right. bank and it has to be there uh and you can look into um mises has a really compelling argument as uh to why in a free banking system um so one without government it would have to be 100% uh, reserve. And it essentially comes down to when banks come to even up at the end of the month, if there was one bank that had just been given money that didn't exist out, they would be like, yo, we're not dealing with you anymore because you can't give us the money that you like wrote notes for. Um, but a fractional reserve system is essentially, if I go right now, um, 
the, the reserve ratio got set to zero during the pandemic, which is just horrifying. Uh, but like, <laughs> <laughs> don't say that. That makes me so nervous. <laughs> but, but before then, um, it, it was a uh, 10%. So like, for example, that would mean if I brought a hundred dollars to a bank, um, I, I would give them a hundred dollars and then they would only have to keep 10 per, or uh, 10% of that. So $10 of that in the bank and they could lend out the other 900. And so like 90, or that's what I meant. Sorry, uh, the other ninety, <laughs> um, and it's just like okay, so you're giving out money that doesn't exist. Like those are resources that you've written claims to, which is essentially what money is in this abstract. You know, it's a, it's a claim on resources. So you've written out more claims to resources than there are resources. And like, if you can't already see where that disconnect could get a little dangerous and a little. Uh, fishy to say the least <laughs> like i don't know what else to tell well, you great <laughs> depression yeah great that's, depression 2008 a huge part of what happened at the great depression was and very similar to what happened 2008 2008 as you know had more to do with the uh housing bubble the issue with the with the, with the housing bubble yeah but one of the things that was which was propped up by the, the government by the way meltdown by tom woods if you want to <laughs> kill yourself after that too <laughs> uh, totally propped up by government it was because in the same way that government anyway it was wow. affirmative like action in housing. Right. And it was affirmative action in housing. And then it, as far as the, the Great Depression, it had a lot to do with the government guaranteeing, uh, like sort of like how you have like FDIC and stuff like that, yeah. like the government guaranteeing cash in the bank. So mm -hmm. then what happened is when things started to go south, which by the way, natural booms and busts, uh, when things started to go south, everybody ran to the bank at the same time to cash out, and the bank's like, I don't got it. But like, <laughs> so it's just like... <laughs> e even that, it's not natural booms and busts, though. Like, without a central bank, uh, booms and busts don't happen. You know what I mean? Right, because this was post-Federal Reserve. So Yeah, and, and it was the first bit where actually there was a depression in 1920 and 21, and it was initially deeper in most metrics, or, or worse off than most metrics. It was a deeper depression than the Great Depression. But you know what happened? They cut the federal budget by like 80% cut taxes to basically zero and, and like basically eliminated the government out of the economy relatively. And then they, they were, they bounced back in like eight months and then had the roaring twenties. And then the twenties were a little too roaring because of the feds, easy money policies, uh, you know, caused an artificial boom on top of what was already, you know, economic prosperity. Um, and then everybody wants to attribute the prosperity to the bust, and it's just not what happened. So quickly nope. to run through the uh, business cycle theory. Um, so the Austrian business cycle theory was uh, developed by Mises and Hayek back in the early 60s to the early 70s. Hayek actually won the Nobel Prize for it in 73, I believe. Um, oh, stop. <laughs> my cats came out. They've been hiding. Which one is that? Murray was hiding under the bed for like a while. Easton's on the bed, but Murray's just out now. And God, I love him so much. Oh my God. <laughs> Jeez. Uh, um, so the, uh, the business cycle theory is essentially predicated on the idea of interest rates being an intertemporal coordinator. So basically a coordinator across time. Um, when in a free banking system, so like let's just say 100% reserve ratio, um, if the interest rates are low, 
that usually would indicate that there's a lot of saved resources that they can afford to lend out more money without demanding interest. Uh, think of um, law of supply. The more supply there is, the less the cost is. Interest is essentially the price of a loan. So they could, because they had more loanable funds, the cost of those loanable funds was lower, essentially. And then vice versa. Hey, Murray, don't climb on the bookshelf. <laughs> um, sorry, he, he wants to read his namesake. Um, so And vice versa, when there's a higher interest rate, that means there's not as many loanable funds available. And so projects, long-term projects, won't get started when there's not as many funds available because over time even 0.5% in an interest rate difference can make a massive difference if it's like a three-year, $8 million project or something like that. So with that, there's like a kind of song and dance that businesses and banks will do where, you know, when the interest rate's super low, that means consumer demand is super low because obviously there's a ton of money in the bank, so they're not spending it now. They're deferring it to later. Um, so businesses will take that money and create projects that will satisfy future customer demands and then vice versa, when everybody's spending money now, the interest rates are super high, so then businesses will focus on present production because clearly the market is signaling nobody wants future uh, future consumption at the moment. They just want present uh, consumption. Um, but when you introduce something like the Federal Reserve or the central bank, um, they can artificially influence interest rates, artificially push them down or raise them. So what can happen is if the interest rates should be high, so in other words, present demand and present consumption is very high or higher, uh, higher than not, or um, they can push the interest rates down to zero or close to zero and trick businesses into thinking, oh, you know, there's not as much present uh, consumption. And maybe not every business owner is an economist, so they're not thinking of it in these terms, but they could see this loan that usually gets loaned at, at loaned out at 3% is now 1%. So like it will save me X dollars over Y years, you know, uh, whatever. Um, <laughs> they, they, they'll probably think of it in those terms, like accountants rather than economists. But um, right. so they'll take those loans and create these projects that there's not actually demand for and present consumption will still happen. And so there's a bunch of resources being used towards present consumption. And now also future consumption that nobody wants. So at some point, there's going to reach a point where they have to realize, oh my God, everything's getting so much more expensive because all these resources are getting bid up and used up for present consumption and past product, uh, 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 rather future consumption. Um, there's going to reach a point where they're like, we have to liquidate this project. Like it's just not sustainable. And then that's where you get a lot of layoffs, um, a lot of uh, like factories closing, a lot of projects just crumbling if you look at who is actually unemployed the most in depressions it's something called um workers in higher order goods so the hayekian triangle is basically um the lower order goods are closer to finished goods and the higher order goods are closer to raw materials so the the people i might actually have that backwards but either way it, it, it goes in one of those directions but for present purposes because i've forgotten the higher order goods are raw materials the lower order goods are finished goods um so the workers in the higher order goods and like manufacturing and processing and things like that um construction uh industries like that they're the ones who get hit hardest by uh, unemployment and that is very very uh it, it tracks with the austrian theory directly um and it's because those 
industries are usually the ones doing the longer term projects and they are getting destroyed <laughs> because of these false infl- uh, uh, interest rates. Um, and it all comes through inflation because the only reason they have those extra funds to loan and can satisfy the false signal or the satisfy the um, request that the false signals are provoking these businesses to do is because the government can just print more money and inflate the money supply and hand it to these right. people. And then you get things like the Great Depression where, you know, unemployment rates were upwards of 30 percent. You can have um, 2008, which I think the peak uh, unemployment rate was somewhere around 15 to 17, if I'm remembering correctly. Like people kill themselves over this sort of thing, like losing a business and like not being able to feed their family. I, I know a guy in 2008 who had to live out of his car with his family on welfare and, and like it all could have been avoided. Like the government just had to be less crony, less fascist. Cause like really that is what a central bank is, is a fascist money system. If you want to, especially if you have it under the guise of a private bank operating the central bank, which whatever, uh, give me a, oh. give me a break. Um, <laughs> like if it is a private system, uh, or a private bank running the national money supply, then what is that other than a fusion of corporate and state power, which is fascism? Like, the Federal Reserve is a fascist institution then. All right, I'll, I'll, like, that helps me out with my argument. Uh, so then, uh, I've been talking for like nine minutes. Do you have anything? No, dude, I, was, I, man, I, I, can, that... I can keep going. Uh, <laughs> like, part of the reason, again, the, the, the <laughs> stock market, because like in 2000, uh, uh, the stock market is so detached, and you could see it in the, the past pandemic. The um, stock market crashed. Um, uh-huh. then like 30 million people got put out of work all of a sudden in like three months unemployment is still going up but the stock market is back to like you know where it was like a year ago or whatever stock market and the real world are so disconnected and it's because when new money gets put into the system it goes through uh, or there's something called the Cantion effect which um, I believe his name was Richard Cantion or Cantion uh, was an Irish economist back in like the 1870s or something like that, I think. Um, the Cantillon effect is basically when new money gets introduced into the system, it goes through a various amounts of like roots and channels um, to end up fully integrated into the system. And in our system, because it goes through these massive banks that are basically run by the government or the banks are running the government, whichever way, you know, half dozen of one, six of the other. Um, Which especially with the creation of the fed that's become a little bit more blurry yeah because a lot of like for example when in 2008 happens and you have massive bailouts going to banks like bank of america chevy chase and all these other people uh i say chevy chase anyway (laughs) when you have these (laughs) but when you have these massive bailouts going to chase loud jesus and uh other crediting institutions and banks what happens is there's this random fusion that or not random there's this fusion that happens because just like you were saying where you've got the fed and the government the fed is is a a a presidentially decreed institution Mm -hmm. so that's why we 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 crap on woodrow wilson is because he created the fed right allowed the empire and which thus the, and the income tax. Man, I, I hate Wilson like a lot. <laughs> he's a he's one of the worst of all time. Yeah. And so not only did you have the Fed cr- get created by governmental decree in the same way that we create like a, a homeland security EPA. after nine eleven, you know, the government, it's just another government agency, the Constitution. But then there is this this unfortunate 
clause that allows the Fe- the Federal Reserve to pretend it gets it gets to behave like Bank of America, where yeah. the president gets to pick the chair, and then after that, the chair gets to act like a CEO of a private bank. That just happens like to be able backed, to print money. <laughs> that happens. That that gets the the mm, that gets the freaking print money. So then you have this weird thing happening where it's not quite functioning like a private bank, but it gets to do all the rules and regulations that private banks would do with the caveat that it can print its own money. It's also in bed with the president of the United States because mm-hmm. the president of the United States gets to select the, the, the chair of the federal reserve. And then also it is guaranteeing by way of its printing pet press, the loans that in the, in the amount of capital that people are put in the pr- other private banks by way of government decree. And then when we have these busts due to government inflate, due to government uh, intervention, and we, we then go back to these banks and we bail them the frick out. Yeah. Same. And it's, this the first, and what's interesting is that Henry would say that from the wars to a lot of other things that go on in the world that are very dangerous, that it's mainly for the purpose of enriching two groups of people, which would be, I mean, obviously politicians and there's other benefactors and things like that, but it's the big banks first and foremost, and then the military industrial complex, because there's nothing that makes, by the way, the big banks richer than getting to fund and finance war. So it ends up becoming a really great synergy with them too, but at the risk of going too deep into, you know, the military industrial complex and how big banks are propping them up and allowing the funds from these other nations to keep them uh, rich and politicians and all that stuff. The war state Um, by Michael Swanson. If you want that, uh, by the way. Yeah. Just, Um, it's so bad. Isn't it Ryan? Yeah. But to play (laughs) uh, real fast on, um, because I mentioned the ethics of money production a little bit ago. Um, and I'm going to play on like kind of the emotional, uh, appeal of some religious people. Uh, so the Uh-oh. Federal Reserve is essentially claiming the the right to create value out of nothing. And I'm not a theological expert, from, but from what I understand, there's only supposed to be one being that is able to create value out of nothing, and it is not the government. So if, that, if you want a little view of how they view themselves up in, up in the, the Capitol, <laughs> that's how. They think they're God. That's why fiat is so dangerous because it gives them the supreme authority to determine what's valuable. So that's why that piece of paper is so dangerous, especially when you just print it out of nothing. Yeah. Because they're just saying this is valuable because we are the government and we decree that that's worth $100. Yeah. It's like, whoa, that's really bad. Yeah. Oh, and also to finish on the Kantian effect thing real fast. So there's like routes and channels that the money comes through. And because it's in this current system, usually like in a gold uh, standard it comes from like mines and mints and stuff like that obviously um, but because it's just fiat and by decree it goes through these big banks they're the ones who get the money first and they're actually usually getting given the uh, the money at zero percent interest and then they'll loan it to you at interest, at interest. Uh, but exactly whatever exactly what happened with covid bt dubs yeah but whatever but because <laughs> they're going through this these banks it's usually the investment class that gets the money first so they can go blow it in the stock market have these stocks get ridiculously overpriced for nothing you know uh, and uh that's why the stock market can look like it's at all-time highs because it is because it's being propped up by this bubble press <laughs> you know at the federal reserve um and then it just kind of trickles down. This is the actual trickle down <laughs> economics is the fiat system. Then it kind of trickles down into the lower classes when they sell off their stocks and they pay for food and pay for other services. And that 
trickles its way through the rest of the economy. That's the Cantillon effect. And, like, it just makes logical sense that that's exactly what would happen. Like, the money has to start somewhere and it has to end up somewhere else. I'm mad. Uh, that's the secret. You just gotta stay mad. Uh, <laughs> stay mad. <laughs> and, and like, I'd like to read this uh, this quote from Mises because, especially when we talk about the government like injecting funds and into banks specifically, bailouts, all this stuff. I do want to touch real quickly because we're a little bit over time um, on just inflation specifically. Yeah. <laughs> um, Ryan and I are known to do like two hour episodes. Uh, <laughs> a little bit. If you wind me up and um, let me go, I'll, I'll just keep going. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I, I want to just get a, a couple of closing thoughts from you, Ryan, based on this quote. Uh, it's from Ludwig von Mises, the, the man, the myth, the legend from uh, 1951 speech of his. And it says there's uh, nowadays a very reprehensible and even dangerous semantic confusion that makes it extremely difficult for the non-expert to grasp the true state of affairs. Inflation, as this term was always used everywhere and especially in this country, the United States, means increasing the quantity of money and banknotes in circulation and the quantity of bank deposits subject to check. So basically, money. Yeah. <laughs> it's the amount of money that is in circulation. Um, but people today use the term inflation to refer to a phenomenon that is an inevitable consequence of inflation. That is the tendency of all prices and wage rates to rise. The result of this deplorable confusion is that there is no term left to signify the cause of this rise in prices and wages. There is no longer any word available to signify the phenomenon that has been up to now called inflation. It follows that nobody cares about inflation in the traditional sense of the term, as you cannot talk about something that has no name and you cannot fight it. Those who pre pretend to fight inflation are in fact only fighting what is the inevitable consequence of inflation and rising prices. Their virtues are doomed to failure because they do not attack the root of the evil. And I, th I thought reading that kept just it got all the things firing in the brain because I always thought that inflation was a rise in prices, and I never knew why that was a rise in prices. I just mm. thought that you know as time goes on, things get more expensive. That's what I was taught, even in homeschooling. That's what I was taught because that was what the understanding was. Yeah. And it wasn't until I started reading more Rothbard and things like that that I realized that inflation was, thank you, Ryan, was an increase in the money supply. And so, of course, when there's more of it, it's no longer as valuable. So naturally, prices increase. And because those prices increase, you basically get the opposite of a raise in your current wages. Mm -hmm. So we have to increase things like minimum wage and things like that to compete. So that way, the same $15 can have the purchasing power that $8 a couple of years ago would have given you. So it's not that you're getting paid more. It's it's creating an equilibrium. Yeah. And there's actually an equation that talks about that equili equilibrium. And it's... Um, the equation of exchange, but the issue with the equa the the uh, equation of exchange is that the increase in money supply is not always congruent to the increase in prices. Meaning that if the if there's a five percent increase in the money supply, there's mm -hmm. not necessarily a five percent increase in prices. Yeah. So although the equation of exchange is really helpful, it's not necessarily the most accurate way, especially in a you know pseudo free market society, to adjudicate as to why prices are increasing and purchasing power is going down, because 
you know, ultimately the value of something is what someone's willing to pay for it, which isn't always congruent with the amount that we, with the amount of value that we prescribe to fiat. Yeah. But I thought that was just so interesting because at the end of the day, we, we keep trying to address inflation, especially from a lot of like woke, wokeism ideas where we need to give more money to single moms. You know, they always make it like the, the person that you feel like needs to help the most or whoever. And we need to make sure we increase the wages because people can't make a living wage off of this. And it's like, yeah, that's because the policy, especially those that are flowing out of the federal reserve that is directly responsible for inflating the supply of the cash is causing these very people that you say you care about for their dollar to have less purchasing power. Yeah. So every time you want to print them a stimulus check, every time you want to send you want to con us into another war, every time you want to get us to intervene in other countries, and then we're printing money to do all of these things, we're directly affecting the very people that you claim to help. And then you're going to say, oh, because I care about those people, I'm going to increase their wages, which usually just causes equilibrium. And then that same person regardless, because by the way, in places like California and places like... Uh, uh, in places like Oregon and Portland and things like that, they already have higher minimum wages. Yeah. California is already $15 an hour pretty much through the entire state. And guess what? There's still an insane homeless problem. So clearly just increasing the amount of wages to this magical number that, by the way, isn't congruent from state to state isn't going to fix Somebody should issue. tell so. Uganda and Kenya that all they have to do for prosperity is unionize and wait, raise the minimum wage. Oh, oh wait a second. Um, oh, man. But it, uh, Did they already do that? <laughs> <laughs> a few thoughts on the uh, on that quote specifically. Um, I hate the the term circulation of money, even though I like. Sorry, Mises, you're wrong because it just kind of gives the the visual interpretation of just money like flowing around. It's like money is just it's, it's static. It's either in my possession or in your possession. There's no circulation. It's not like doing its own thing flying around. It's very binary and static. And like that the, uh, drives me crazy. <laughs> it's, it's a transfer of property rights just like any other trade, but whatever. Um, <laughs> Don't you think that that's indicative though of like you're, you're adjudicating that correctly based off of today's colloquialisms of circulation. Yeah. So it's not so much that he means that either that it's like circulating around in the ether yeah. but it's more so the fact that you know i exchange money to you and that dollar goes there now that dollar gets exchanged to someone else and then maybe that dollar somehow ex- gets exchanged back to me and then back to someone else like that's what he means by circulation but isn't it funny how like someone else reading that same thing would think it just circulates in the ether yeah it, you know? it makes it <laughs> it makes it sound like it's just doing its own thing and it's like no we're like it's us <laughs> but like whatever um, and then another thing about it is, um, so th- th- there's been a recent, I think since like the 1990s, maybe early or, uh, mid to late eighties, um, the definition of inflation switched from an increase in the money supply to an increase in overall prices. And, uh, Rothbard makes the point in the beginning of America's great depression in relation to bi- uh, business cycles. So obviously sometimes businesses are going to fail because like they make bad investments on their own. Maybe their demand of the product goes down. Like businesses fail sometimes. And like that's one thing. But and sometimes prices go up for certain products because, you know, maybe a certain component in a computer gets more expensive for some reason. But it's like the one product. But when it's system wide, how is it anything but 
a monetary phenomenon. It's not like every company in the country was colluding. Like, so this year we're going two and a half percent word. All right, let's do two and a half percent. Like it can only be a system wide thing. And what is half of every transaction money? So like it has to be, it, it can't be businesses increasing the prices because they just want to increase the prices. It's businesses increasing the prices because the money just doesn't get them as much, but whatever. Uh, that's just their, their communist tactic to try to blame capitalism, <laughs> whatever. Um, and then another thing is, uh, or my last thing you mentioned, um, that they try to like, they'll try to prop up wages to match inflation. And it's really unfortunate because typically wages are the last thing to rise because of course they are. Like if, if it costs you $10 labor and all like labor and materials to build a widget to sell, but then all of a sudden your materials make it cost $12. Well, you're not going to also voluntarily take on another, you know, $2 an hour or whatever it would be to increase wages to match it because everybody else is still making pre pre-inflation wages. So they don't have the extra money to spend on your thing. So you have to keep it as cheap as possible. And if you bump it up to 14, like people might not buy it because they're still making Money. There's a in the case against the Fed, Rothbard basically makes the argument correctly, in my opinion, that the Fed is just a bunch of counterfeiters, and counterfeiters have uh, an enormous benefit in new money creation because they get to spend the money before inflation has taken place. So they're artificially wealthy relative to the rest of the system, and they can exploit that. And then when it, uh, the money you know kind of settles in the economy, then everyone kind of is on an even playing playing field. But they got the advantage. Like everything else went up relatively proportionally for everything else. But everything was still super cheap pre money printing for the guys who got it first. Right. Um, not to mention that the 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 amount of profit in that goods, if it goes up by two dollars, you're not gonna also double your profit loss yeah. in that. So if you made if it took you ten dollars to make that cheeseburger and say you made eight dollars and then now it's going to cost an extra $2 to make that cheeseburger, you're not going to then double the the loss and make only $4 off the burger. You're going to try and make six because every company in a free market society, in a free market economy, is incentivized to make as much profit as possible, which, by the way, when there's no government inflation, or, or not government inflation, when there's no government intervention, that also causes the, the person who is working and the person who is consuming to be major benefactors in exchange. But as soon as government gets involved and you start artificially making things bigger, it's like, well, companies aren't making as much money. The consumer is, has to pay more. And that same consumer, when he goes to work, has less money to spend because he's not getting a, a raise for the apropos raise in prices. Yeah. So And also, it's just uh, like deflation is not a bad thing. Like competition, like this is basic economics. Like competition makes prices go down because people are competing for your business. So why wouldn't we want deflation across the board like why is the price of bread which we've been making for thousands of years still going up like it should be four cents to make bread like we've been doing right. it for forever we're really good at it why is it still getting more <laughs> expensive it's be and now we can preserve it with chemicals yeah and <laughs> like it doesn't make like on its face it doesn't make sense and deflation like all the criticisms of deflation i think fall flat on its face where you know they'll try to say Oh well, if prices are falling, then people might delay purchases because they want, uh, uh, you know, the same product for cheaper later. 
And like the number one refutation to that would just be look at computers. Like they came out, they were really bad at first relatively and they were very expensive. And every year they get smaller, faster, better battery life, stronger, more powerful. And guess what? People are still buying a lot of computers and more affordable for the average consumer because it used to be only certain people had computers and now just about everybody has. I mean, your iPhone, you don't think of it like a computer, but it is, but it is a computer. Yeah. It, it is a fully functioning operating system running applications. So like, like apply that to everything else. <laughs> like, yeah, if, if everything was approaching zero, the price was approaching zero slowly but surely by like 2% a year or, or whatever. Okay, yeah, some people would delay it a year or two but nobody's just going to not buy a TV until the same TV is like $3. Because then by then, the TV they're going to buy is gonna, or they're wanting to buy is going to be this garbage like box set with the antenna stack, sticking out. <laughs> you know, like it's, it's, and they're not going to want it because the other stuff is just so much better for not that much more. Uh, not to mention the risk associated that deflation is temporary. So even if you choose to go ahead and purchase something at the lower price it is now, you don't have that guarantee when you're actually involved in the in in acting in the market to know that it's going to continue to fall yeah. or if it's going to stop or go back up. So that that's just that argument falls flat on its face because we see it with gas prices, we see it yeah. with uh, literally like sales. You know, the whole shebang. Like people will always wait uh, if they feel like they need to wait, but if they feel like they're going to come out on top or more so than they would have, they'll buy. Yeah. And just allow people, allow actors to have the agency to make actions. Yeah. Well, on that note, shoo, it's time to two seventeen or 117. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. This is as close as I'll ever be to a professor. <laughs> is this episode right here. Ryan, you're exceptionally intelligent. Uh, and I love our 101 <laughs> episodes. This is fake news. Anyways. Uh, yep, knew you were gonna say something. Find like that. us on Instagram. Everyone slide into our DMs and talk about how smart Ryan is. Give us just to make him uncomfortable. Give, See, he's trying to move on, but he's so give smart. Give us other topics. To, thinker. Give us other topics to talk. <laughs> All I do is repeat what people said already. Uh, give us other topics to talk about. Um, follow us on Instagram, Twitter, Patreon at the Lunch Boys Pod. Um, five stars on iTunes. Four stars. We send them back. That's right. What we do is we take that money. We're going to make a new Central Reserve Review Bank. We're going to take it, put it in that bank. Then that bank is going to guarantee that any review left in our review bank is five stars. Hell yeah. Yeah. (laughs) All right. Thanks for listening. Uh, If you made it this far, uh, buy some books. You can get them all at uh, store.mises.org for like dirt cheap. Like I think all the books I said you could probably get for 150 bucks. Um, and tomorrow would be 152. Is such a great resource. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, they might be. So get in on that now before deflation stops. <laughs> yeah, for real. Uh, nonprofit bookstores. But anyways, thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. Bye. Bye. That's it for this edition of The Lunch Boys. Join us again next time as the boys take one step closer to getting canceled. Bye-bye now. Stay safe out there. There is a lot of COVID. You might get it. You might not. Wear a mask. Or do not. Who knows? But whatever you do, have a strong opinion about it, comrades. See you in Gulag soon, yes? <laughs> you think I kid. I not kid. <laughs>